The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Communicating well can be tricky at the best of times, but when it comes to communicating about development issues, it becomes even trickier. For a long time, the vast majority of charities communicated their work through fundraising campaigns, featuring stereotypical representations of the poor and vulnerable in order to elicit donations. Think about the ads featuring starving African children with fly-blown eyes and distended bellies. Growing up, for me, this was the standard for charity advertising, and it seemed that charities were constantly trying to one-up each other in a race for those scarce donor funds. Who can publish the most heartbreaking image? Who can get the most sponsorships? Thankfully, charity communication has evolved somewhat, although we still do see terrible examples of it. Just last week, the international health charity, MSF, broadcast a $400,000 TV fundraising campaign in Canada, despite warnings from its own staff that it was exploitative, racist, and reinforced the white saviour narrative, not to mention breaching the charity's own ethical guidelines. The ad in question featured the REM track, Everybody Hurts, played over images of crying black children being treated by MSF medics. The ad has since been pulled and has triggered somewhat of a crisis internally at MSF. The world of communication for development is a fascinating one, with so many angles from which to look at it. I invited Associate Professor of International Development at Malmö University in Sweden, Tobias Denskis, to chat this through with me. Tobias teaches a master's program in communication for development and conducts research on how communication can lead to learning and challenge white saviorism, stereotypical campaigns, and superficial influences on Instagram. Tobias also runs the excellent blog, Aidnography, and a Twitter account of the same name. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Tobias. Thanks, Lee, for having me. I'm great it worked out in such a short notice. Yes, yes, me too. Okay, Tobias, we're going to jump right in and I'll ask you the question I ask everybody. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? For me personally, doing good right now means looking after about 150 of our master students in, uh, in our communication for development program and making sure that they have an as enjoyable time as is possible under the current circumstances. So talking to students, engaging with students, hopefully contributing to their learning and reflection, that's probably one of my small contributions to doing good. You obviously think a lot about doing good through your work. How do you feel that you express 
doing good in kind of general daily life outside of the pandemic? I mean, one way of expressing the good is um, through my writing. I'm in in a very fortunate and privileged position that I'm a full-time academic uh, with a long-term contract and using that position to to write critically um, about various organizations without being worried about funding being cut or um, the wrong people feeling attacked. That's hopefully one of my small contributions, um, mainly expressed through my blog as ethnography. And the other way that I'm really trying to use digital communications is to amplify with whatever small digital voice I have other positive examples of doing good. And I think that's that's particular with my weekly um, blog review where I try to kind of review interesting articles that I have come across throughout the week and really try to highlight the, the great work from small organizations, journalists from the global south, a blog post that otherwise may even receive fewer hits and just sort of highlight good writing, critical writing and engaging with it and, and hopefully contribute to discussions that then eventually will also lead to organizations communicating a little better, using their knowledge more critically in very, very small ways. Excellent. I have to say, if anybody is interested in unpacking a lot of these issues that we talk about on the podcast, those lists that Tobias puts together on ethnography are excellent. And I highly recommend you go and check them out or subscribe because there's some really great stuff in there. Tobias, your work focuses on communication for development. And through ethnography, you highlight both good and bad examples of this. Can you talk us through what exactly communication for development means and why it's important? Communication for development means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And I think it's essentially a discipline that, that never really managed to become a discipline. And I know some, some of my colleagues will, will probably get a bit itchy right now because they don't really like to hear this. But I think communication for development is primarily and fundamentally based upon the participatory development discourse we have been seeing emerging since the 70s, since the 80s, everything from Paulo Ferre to Robert Chambers has been informing the understanding that if you want to achieve positive, inclusive social change that ideally is sustainable, you will need to invest time and effort, critical analysis, involve a whole range of stakeholders, communicate constantly, critically and well and be prepared that the outcome may not be as intended. Development communication or communication for development can can aid these processes. But it it is an extension, I would say, of more traditional development studies and development research. There is, however, when you talk to a different set of colleagues and you think about sort of larger scale interventions, social behavior change communication, how can you create a campaign to take on hand washing in Bangladesh. And we are talking then about tens or hundreds of thousands of people. We are obviously moving into a very different form of communication for development. And then we move into a sort of social psychology, potentially uh, behavioral economics and, and other aspects, which are definitely worthwhile and interesting on that sort of large end when you really want to talk about sort of large scale change. 
But I think from the communication for development that I feel most comfortable with is more based in qualitative insights and qualitative research and really facilitates those change processes rather than creating, you know, a big campaign and say, okay, we roll this out and we will nudge people into a certain direction. But it's interesting, I think, how it has changed over time. And I mean, I was, um, the other day I was preparing a lecture and looking a little bit more on the history of communication for development. And there was this really interesting point in time, and you can actually point it out quite, quite specifically, because it was in 2006, um, there was the first World Congress on Communication for Development. Um, and this was the first time a set of organizations came together that rarely comes together. So we have like FAO uh, working on agricultural communication, um, UNICEF, the, the UN agency that is sort of officially tasked with uh, C4D communication for development in the UN system. But there was also the OECD and the World Bank and, and NGOs and academics. And in 2006, I think there was a real excitement and feeling, wow, we have all these new communication tools. The internet is really taking off. This will help us to power um, a new form of, of communication and really help us in the future to communicate better with various stakeholders. So a lot of enthusiasm and, and really sort of positive momentum for change. And then it kind of faded away a little bit. <laughs> and I think that's, um, I think that's partly because obviously the, the world and digital communication changed so quickly and so profoundly. Um, I don't think in 2006 that there was a lot of thinking about how can tools or platforms or apps be used sort of, you know, for the social bad. I mean, this was still, wow, we have Wikipedia. This is an open encyclopedia and people can contribute it and, you know, knowledge will be shared and will help activists to, you know, to create better campaigns. And obviously in 2020, we know that it's, it's a little bit more complicated and unfortunately, a lot of these tools come with a very dark downside. And I think communication for development is still grappling a little bit with that, with that change or with those profound changes. That on the one hand, we have a vision of you know, participatory positive development and a common goal. Like if you want to achieve something, you know, a community, an organization has that common goal. And we have been learning this in the last few years that it's, it's much more complicated and very often governments, donors, organization, local power holders do not share the same vision and, and can use tools almost in exactly the opposite way as it was intended. And that's really difficult because communication for development is a small community. The community doesn't have the direct access to Facebook executives. So we experience a lot of these changes um, and are happy to criticize them and hoping for, for positive impact. But the world, or when we look on at the scale of the issue, is unfortunately very often moving into a different direction. Yeah, definitely. One kind of aspect of communication for development that comes up a lot in my line of work is the concept of poverty porn or, you know, charities using undignified or exploitative images of poor and vulnerable people in order to raise money. Obviously, there's a tension here, you know, charities need to raise money. The research tells us or has told us in the past that 
stimulating an emotion in the consumer of the the communications or the media actually moves people to donate. And that's why we've, you know, for a time there saw those traditionally very exploitative and harmful ads with starving children and fly blown faces and distended bellies. And we've started to move away from that, or at least there's more awareness about why that's not okay, but we still see it and charities still justify it. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yes, I think the real challenge is is that we need to unpack not just the organizations using stereotypical representations in their ads, but really also the the structures behind it. Last week, there was an article um, shared uh, on the Guardian's development side about MSF Canada spending 400,000 Canadian dollars on a campaign that I think most experts would quickly agree was really terrible and promoting very outdated, borderline racist images. And the first reaction is, oh my God, how can MSF of all organizations, it's supposed to be sort of, you know, a critical global organization, a critical NGOs where really tough discussions take place internally. How can this happen? How can they do this? And I think it's important then to unpack and to see, well, it wasn't sort of a one sort of unified MSF. It was a fundraising um, effort by MSF Canada. And unfortunately, we see this from a lot of organizations that especially local fundraising arms are still using a lot of those traditional at best outdated or potentially racist at worst images. I mean, I, I live in Sweden and usually in the afternoon, um, I, I have sort of a, a little break and I watch Murder, She Wrote, um, the reruns on <laughs> Swedish television. And it's absolutely mind blowing what you sometimes see as commercials in between Jessica Fletcher solving murder cases. And you talk about UNICEF, Sweden, the Red Cross, Sweden, Plan Sweden, and they are running absolutely terrible and surprisingly long 30, 45 second, one and a half minute campaigns. There is a UNICEF campaign where where quite literally the white Swedish nurse is feeding a starving child and the helpless mother is sitting next to it. I mean, this is, this has been outdated, you know, since, since 30 years ago, but there is a certain demographic and usually linear TV is a good kind of indication of what that demographic is of very traditional, usually older conservative donors that still respond to it. And on, if you go to UNICEF's global headquarter, you will, well, I mean, first it will say, thank you, UNICEF Sweden for, you know, raising funding for us. And then they will probably say, yeah, we have guidelines and we as global UNICEF, we wouldn't use those kind of images for campaigning because we have a completely different set of standards. And we know the moment we put this on Twitter or we put this on, on Facebook and social media, we will receive exactly the kind of reaction that MSF Canada is now uh, facing. So we are in this kind of strange, almost a limbo, where on the one hand, those, those traditional stereotypical representation are still exist and are still used. And at the same time, if you go to the organization themselves, you will see how tough the discussions are. And I remember there was a research article that came out maybe two or three years ago where a colleague looked at exactly those discussions. It was a qualitative study of how uh, a British NGO is discussing using images in various publications and communication materials. And there were really, really tough discussions. People sitting around the table and say, 
this is a terrible image. I don't want to see this. And at the same time, knowing that this will help the organization to raise money. And finding that balance between images that are, um, that are em empowering images that show happiness, normality in, in people's lives, and really going back to the stereotypical starving children with flies on their face is an extremely tough discussion. Definitely. And I think, you know, even in Australia, we see these ads coming on on the weekend from organizations that, you know, would say we're at the forefront of child protection and child rights movements. And then, you know, you turn on the television and there's that stereotypical image of that starving child somewhere in Africa and say, you know, emotive music and saying, basically, if you don't donate, this child will die without saying it in those many words. And so, yeah, you're right. There is a there is a disconnect between what the organization is doing in practice versus what they're putting out there to raise money. And speaking to people within that particular organization that I'm thinking of and saying, well, you know, why do you do this? It's always this brings in the most money. When this ad runs, we get a huge spike in donations. Which brings me to the question, what is the role in educating the general public, the donors, about not accepting this kind of advertising out there? I think, yeah, I think that's a good question. And I don't want to let organizations too easily off the hook and say, well, unfortunately, there's nothing you can do. You know, you need the money, you need to do the fundraising. If other types of communication um, and other images bring in less money, then that may be a difficult decision you have to do as an organization. And if that means that you share more positive images and you explain this to donors in your communication, in your annual reports, and still you have a, let's say, 20% decline in donations, that may be a price you as an organization will have to pay, as there are many other parameters changing um, around you anyway. So that, that traditional charity model of, you know, you raise funds in Australia and then you implement projects in Africa, that model gets challenged more and more for the right reasons. So bringing in less money may also be an opportunity for an organization to really think what is the core of what we want to do, of how we want to do it and how we want to talk about it. And if that means one project less is implemented, that may actually not be the worst thing that can happen. And I know it's tough for an organization and we live in a world where, you know, growth is good and, you know, the bigger, the better, and, you know, more money will automatically need to more projects or more support. But I think in the, in the times where we are living, any Northern or any OECD based organization who implements project in so-called developing countries will have to ask many and very tough questions about their model, the way they work, the way they create exchanges, the way their power relations that get upheld by their work. And fundraising and using fundraising materials differently is only one aspect of it. In practice, though, have you seen big organizations actually say, well, we won't run that ad even at the risk of not being able to run this program or fund these staff members that we have, for example, because 
you know, I, I've worked within big international charities and, you know, everybody has fundraising goals that they have to meet. Their jobs are at risk if they don't. You know, it's it's such a dynamic changing environment that people are operating in and it's very competitive for donor funds. So to me, it seems like the, the ethical considerations kind of fall to the bottom of the heap, even when, for example, that organization has signed up to a voluntary code of conduct around communication for development and how they will represent children or other vulnerable people. Sometimes it seems that they're willing to take the hit around that because it brings in so much money. Large organizations right now, I think, outsource some of these ethical concerns. Um, if if you talk to their global headquarters of, of Save the Children or Oxfam or ActionAid or UNICEF or PLAN, you will probably get a lot of the right answers. But at the same time, they know that their, their national organizations, which are often primarily or exclusively used for fundraising, will follow a different route. And I mean, they will kind of turn at least half a blind eye and say, well, it's great that there's so much money coming uh, out of Germany. Um, and if you look around, you know, the way, for example, Plan is, is still promoting a, a child sponsorship models in Germany is, is very, very traditional and nothing many experts in development would really like to see and to promote. But at the same time, the global plan office will say, you know, Germany is, I think, among the, the five largest uh, uh, contributors. So translating your positive ambitions, your code of conduct down to national organizations and by way to very often to local volunteers. So how do you explain to the Swedish volunteer at the Red Cross or at UNICEF that there are different forms of communication that may have a different impact in fundraising. I think that's probably the next step that many organizations obviously find hard to do because, again, it, it will affect the bottom line. But I think that's a really important discussion that needs to take place, that you don't just take the money from the national fundraisers, but you also have tough discussions about how to localize and how to ethically communicate in Germany or Sweden or other countries. The child sponsorship model that you mentioned is particularly problematic. And I know within some organizations that it's not actually a child sponsorship model that is occurring. It's just communicated that way. What responsibility do charities have to honestly communicate where the money that is raised through a representation of a child sponsorship model? What responsibility do do they have to tell donors what actually occurs with that money and where it goes? I mean, I, I agree. I think the, the way, for example, child sponsorship has changed over the last 10 or 20 years to much more community-based funding and engagement is communicated. But at the end of the day, very often the entry point is to say, you know, you can sponsor a child and you will receive a letter. Of course, you should. In an ideal world, you are transparent and open, and you explain this to donors, and they will, you know, they will listen and believe you and say, "Oh, this is fantastic! I'm, I'm still sticking around." And there's possibly also a generational issue that I think there is a, there's a demographic of of sponsors in 50 years of age, maybe, and 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 plus, who really wants to have that traditional engagement. I get a nice photo once a year and and two letters. 
And for those organizations, I, I don't think there's a way of, of changing those perceptions. I mean, can you work with a younger demographic that is willing to and understands the community building aspect much better is going to be a challenge. So I'm cutting organizations a little slack and you say, okay, um, I know you don't do exactly what maybe what you may communicate. It isn't about buying a football for one child. It's now that model has changed at least unless you look into really sort of Christian fringes of, of the child sponsorship uh, discussion. But the mainstream organizations um, are changing and they're, I think they're nudging um, the sponsors in the right direction. And so I would say I'm cutting him some slack if the results on the ground have a positive impact for a community and um, a pensioner in Northern Sweden would really like to have that connection to one child, I give you that, that space. But what I find interesting in those discussions is always the aspect that, you know, it has to be a North-South exchange. And I always find it amazing when we think about, you know, what can we do at home? Why, why do we have to think about, you know, getting a letter from a child in, in Zimbabwe? The pensioner who may be alone in the north of Sweden, she will probably be also happy to receive a letter from a six-year-old in Malmö. And, you know, so this idea that there is sort of, there is a contractual, and then it quickly moves into sort of the white savior narrative. But how can we, the idea behind it that we want to create, that we want to connect different communities, that we want to, in a small way, address inequalities, we, we don't have to do this in Africa or Asia. We can do this at home. And this is where, you know, I'm, I'm sort of advocating quite strongly when it comes to volunteering and all these aspects. There is much to do at home where you can have a similar positive impact and a learning experience and it looks good on your CV, but it doesn't have to come with this traditional kind of A chain of I need to do a church fundraiser, I will go to Ghana and I will spend the summer building a school. That's not the only model. I mean, and 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 I think organizations may want to think about, you know, how how can we create um, those meaningful connections outside a traditional development model. So there's been a lot of discussion across social media and, and other forms of media recently about white saviorism and, you know, institutional racism in the charity sector and beyond. What role do charities and media, traditional media, play in perpetuating that white savior model. I mean, it's something I think about and write about a lot is this, the responsibility of media when they put young people who go and set up a charity or found an orphanage in a, a foreign country and they put them on a pedestal and they hero worship them. And this further inspires other young people to have dreams to go off and do this. Where does the responsibility lie? I mean, ads like where we were previously talking about, um, volunteerism opportunities perpetuated by tourism or development organizations also perpetuate this. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind was the recent discussion, and I think you were also involved at some point with the Sydney Morning Herald um, and the un unfortunate Australian couple who got um, stranded in Uganda. And it was, I think, a, a very good case study of um, 
of how media, mainstream media often approach the topic of white people in Africa, if, if I can generalize that much, that they use sort of a very traditional 20th century model, there needs to be a, a, a local interest. So it is about the, the couple from village X, Y, and Z um, is traveling to Africa. So the local readers in that area will feel some connection. Or it is about, we need to find an Australian uh, citizen who is experiencing a particular crisis or a particular situation. And I think that primarily has to do with the fact that, that foreign journalism has been cut tremendously. The foreign correspondence network has been thinned out with most media brands, and there isn't really a willingness to, to hire local talent. And that contributes to then, you know, you have this quick idea, oh, look, there's a, you know, I see something on Instagram, there's a poor Australian woman stranded somewhere, let's turn this into a story. But if you would talk to local journalists, uh, local storyteller, local photographers and videographers. I mean, they could probably pitch you 20 interesting and different stories. So the responsibility for, for global media brands is really, since they don't have the resources and they don't have that, that network, um, but it's also not enough to say, well, we have the, our bureau chief in Nairobi, and then he or she is supposed to cover everything from South Africa to Libya but really make sure that you have tap into the on the ground local talent. They will produce amazing stories, but hopefully, or not hopefully, I'm pretty sure they will also send you stories that are interesting and relevant for your readers or viewers, but with a different twist. And by all means, I mean, I'm, I'm not just talking about, you know, serious political stories. I'm really talking about stories around culture, music, literature, Passion, basically everything that, you know, that interests a normal reader, so to speak, but with a very different pitch from a different perspective. There's a brilliant new startup, a media startup called Rest of World, that's kind of named after the so-called rest of the world outside the, the dominant mainstream discourse. And they are putting forward fantastic tech stories from around the world and they really they talk to a influencer from from Myanmar they really go into the details of how Facebook is in a positive way um, facilitating um, exchanges in Bangladesh and has basically replaced sort of the infrastructure so there are projects out there that, that tell interesting stories everything from from business to public interest and that you you can tap into and just don't be, I don't want to say lazy, that's maybe a bit rough, but I, you know, just make that effort and, and really talk to experts or talk to those who know those experts on the ground and, and who can facilitate connections. That particular article that you referenced in the Sydney Morning Herald was astounding on so many levels. There were so many holes in the story, for one, and you can see that it was really it was put forward, as you say, out of kind of a scrambling to have a human interest story of, of Australians stuck somewhere due to COVID. What kind of shocked me about that was that there's been at least four subsequent articles on that same couple, mainly focused on the woman, and she's now made it back to Australia. But despite the backlash 
that occurred on Twitter. And I know you had a dialogue with the journalist of the original article, and so did I. Nothing changed. And three or four more articles were produced, still pushing this same narrative that these poor Australians were trapped in what they referred to as the rape capital of the world. And it was all about how dangerous it was and how, you know, they were filling their time. So they decided to start a charity and he'd become the chieftain of the village and give been given a gold mine. And, and despite the pushback, they still run it. Why? Two issues are coming together in this. I think the one is basically the, the, the logic of how global media brands operate. And um, if it's a click, it's a click. It doesn't discriminate whether it's a positive click or whether it's a click or because somebody shared this article in a critical context and you know people read it and say, oh my God, this is horrible. So a media brand like the Sydney Morning Herald looks at the metrics um, and decides this is, you know, we can get some traction out of this. I think that's the logic of, of large media brands struggling to make ends meet and, you know, getting ad revenue in. And, and I think that's a longer discussion we can have. But I think at the same time, we as, as insiders of, of those discussions um, and those who are much more aware about the nuances also really overestimate the interest that sort of the rest of the world or the rest of the society has with some of these stories. I think, you know, I mean, you and I and, you know, a few of our connections on social media and organizations would get really excited about, you know, fashion from Tanzania. But there's also a vast majority of people who who just don't care and don't expect much from, from reporting. And, I mean, especially when it comes to, to anything that has to do with Africa and developments in Africa, I think there is a significant demographic, very often those who probably still buy the Sydney Morning Herald in print, really want to see some of their stereotypes and expectations confirmed. They want to read about the Africa as the sort of the so-called dark continent, there's famine, there's violence, and they are not interested in a shifting narrative. And I think the risk for the journalist is also, well, if we, if we portray Africa too positively, then we also will get questions, you know, why, why are we sending aid money in the first place if, you know, if everything is so great and if there's a new metro bus system, you know, starting in Dar es Salaam or if there's a housing boom in Rwanda. So if you look at the positive sides, like it will undermine some of those media logics that, you know, the clicks are generated through negative images. So the moment we start to report more positively, will we basically lose the clicks and the eyeballs on our website? Yeah, it's very, very true. Tobias, let's talk about another area of uh, research for you into memes and aid worker biographies. And I'm assuming this means how, how people in the sector talk about themselves and poke fun at themselves. Yes, I mean, th these are two very different genres. I would probably pride myself by saying I must be among those people who have read the most aid worker biographies in kind of in the development circle. I'm approaching two dozens now, and it's a very fascinating and relatively new genre because it's it's there has always been the foreign correspondent or the UN official um, who writes a memoir after 30 years in service. 
what the eight worker biographies are really showing is that there's obviously much more diversity. Many biographies, or I would even say disproportionate uh, amount of biographies are written by, by female aid workers. So that brings in a completely new group uh, or set of voices. And it's no longer this, you know, I'm writing this at the end of my career, but it's often at points when people have career transitions. Sort of after 10 years in the aid industry, I realized I don't want to be here, so I'm leaving and do something else, but I want to write down what happened in the last 10 years. And that's really interesting and, and, and fascinating from, from an academic perspective. The diversity of the memoirs is also really interesting. I mean, there's, there's really a full spectrum of books published by major global publishers to self-published books on Amazon that could have done with a little bit more editing. There's that quality aspect, but it's at the same time obviously also fascinating because it is such a really democratic medium. I mean, you can write a book and I mean, some are, I mean, essentially somebody uploaded a word document to, to Amazon's publishing platform. So if you feel the need to write about your experience in the, in the aid system, you will find an outlet. And I think that's, that's, that's very liberating. That's interesting. And it's really complementing um, the textbooks. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, as a, as an academic teacher, I'm, I'm, I'm also interested, you know, what, what is it that students want to read or should read? And obviously, it, it can't just be textbooks and academic uh, articles from, from, from journals. But there is, there is a diversity and a creativity in those that I really appreciate. And uh, I think my next step is now that I want to talk to um, at least some of the, the authors and really get to know them and their motives for writing Better because th there is an element of sort of reflective writing, especially uh, from those who, who had uh, an unpleasant experience in global development, um, sometimes even experienced uh, violence or, or, or sexual violence, to friendlier versions of, you know, I was young and naive and I, you know, I wanted to backpack in Cambodia and 10 years later, I'm the deputy manager of a refugee camp. It's the, the kind of different forms of, you know, there's almost sort of a, a therapeutic uh, way of, of, of using this format to, you know, when I came back, my, my mom said, wow, you have so many fascinating stories, you should, you should write a book. And so it's, it's, it's really the diversity of that, that formats that, that, uh, that attracts me in, in continuing to read them and, and really sort of discover nuances, but also the commonalities. Um, and, you know, that's sometimes many follower um, certain themes, you know, chronological, um, and some of the insights, you know, that the development industry is not as happy and maybe not as collegial as we, you know, we thought it would be, may not be really surprising, but there's always interesting stories and, and, and interesting uh, nuances that, that I, uh, yeah, that really continue to spark my interest in that particular genre. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about the, the tricky ethics of engaging in doing good. And the purpose of the podcast itself is to challenge those dominant narratives around, you know, structural inequality and racism and white saviorism. You've talked about how communication can inform discussion and cause people to become aware of these issues, but how 
can things like a podcast become part of a more substantial change to shifting practice? I think many organizations are finding that out right now because more and more podcasts from very different organizations are are being shared and and set up right now, which I, which I think is 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 very important. And I think that the idea to use the tools that really reach different audiences, um, you know, if you think about using a meme, it may be something that can be shared quickly and easy, easily on social media. If it is a podcast, it um, hopefully reaches, you know, an audience of more younger listeners uh, who are interested in using that medium while exercising and, you know, hopefully go away with some stimulating ideas. So development communication always basically has to follow those those trends and bigger dynamics and really try to be as close to a very difficult to find point where mainstream audiences that are willing to engage are still around, but we still have a meaningful um, engagement and discussions with the in-group of experts, academics, consultants, aid workers. I mean, that's something that is that is shifting very quickly. I mean, I, just yesterday, I, I, I noticed on, on Twitter, there was a, um, um, somebody was tweeting critically about TED Talks and was kind of, you know, as it is with a tweet, very short, like, does anybody still watch these things? And then I, I was actually thinking that, you know, five years ago, um, together with a colleague, I conducted some research on development TED Talks. And I was going back to the research and to the article that came out uh, five years ago, and it feels outdated. So the whole discussion about, wow, TED Talks, the next, you know, and, and at some point they reached tens and hundreds of thousands of viewers. And there were some interesting development podcasts as well, but it also wasn't sustainable. So this idea that, you know, if every library, uh, public library in the world has access to TED Talks, they can basically use this for educational purposes and children will learn and people will, you know, grow through uh, TED Talks. Not so much. So I think we are also in that situation where many media platforms um, are uh, changing rapidly. I mean, in my development blogging, I also noticed that, you know, many colleagues no longer write a blog. They use newsletters instead, for example. So they're, they're, different, they're different tools. Um, obviously, podcast is another emerging medium that is, is gaining momentum and interest. But will we have a discussion in five years' time where we lament the demise of the podcast in development? It's possible. But at the same time, it also is that, you know, as of any kind of media development, the formats kind of, they never die. They just, it's a bit like CDs and vinyl. At some point, you know, they, they still, they fade out, they lose popularity, but they're still great development blocks. And there will be great development podcasts in five years time, probably fewer than we have now. But so these forms of engagement will be there, but there will also be new forms of engagement. And I mean, I would really like to see more large organizations, more donors moving a bit closer to that kind of critical edge and being able to open up and communicate their work in different ways, because it, it, is, it is a really great way of engaging and also in sharing the complexities of your work. I mean, it's, you know, it's, we, can, we can argue or we can criticize the World Bank or Save the Children for, for many reasons. But at the same time, the moment where you go into organizational routines 
um, discussions, but also some of the ethical discussions, you know, or challenges that staff face. That's really helpful to, to get to know that side as well. So in large organizations could open up much more. And I know they're always afraid that, you know, they, they, they will be criticized or there will be a backlash uh, on, on social media and else. But I, I would strongly believe that the, uh, that the positive aspects outweigh any kind of critique that may, that may come their way. Tobias, what is it about your work that you are most naturally drawn to? And conversely, what is it that you find the most challenging? The part I find most challenging is the academic writing, um, because that's, a, that's also a genre that, that comes with its own quirks and idiosyncrasies. And um, I think in, in our environment, it is also very difficult to to follow, you know, a long publication process that can easily take a few years, you know, with a very uncertain outcome that only very few people will actually read the finished article. I would say I'm naturally drawn to allowing myself as an academic to be in a space where communication becomes more in the moment and more fleeting. When academic colleagues say, you know, kind of, you know, being on social media is a waste of time and, you know, you should be writing a book or an article, I think both have values, but on, on very different levels. And my tweets from two years ago very unlikely have any kind of long-standing sustainable value. And that's, I think, as an academic, that's sometimes really difficult to come to terms with, you know, to, to let go. And to send out a tweet and, you know, and you, you, you have this fascinating article and you provided a, a Twitter thread with 16 carefully crafted tweets. and you get two likes in one retweet and you realize that paper you found fascinating, that report, it was the wrong time. It was the, the wrong wording. It disappears in, in kind of a, an open space of communication. And that's challenging. And, I, and I'm also researching humanitarian memes. And what I discovered in that space is also very difficult for an academic to come to terms with this when you are faced with communication that is absurd to a point of, I don't want to say meaningless, but to a point of unresearchable, that when you look at memes and, you know, and somebody says, you know, yes, you can do an analysis and I can, you know, I can bring out some, you know, big sociological guns and try to analyze. But when you try to do it, you also realize that it's just a meme. It's just somebody sitting somewhere in a guest house in Chad or in Nairobi or in Sudan and they're letting off some steam. They had a terrible day. They work for um, WFP or UNICEF Logistics, and you know they're having a hard time getting the supplies to, to communities in need. And there's an, a funny, satirical, dark, um, ironic meme, but that's it. it. It disappears. It doesn't have, it doesn't help you to get this kind of, this bigger picture, this ton of meaning that all of a sudden opens up and you start writing you know an article on how two memes from uh, a, a, a guest house in the middle of nowhere in the deep field help us to explain uh, understand development in the 21st century it doesn't and that's i think what you know what communication for development like i you know when you wish for that kind of bigger story or you know that things build up on each other and they reach sort of you know a a viral momentum, and most of the times they don't. 
Tobias, what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? It's probably not surprising if I say climate change or the climate emergency. Many of the the issues we are dealing with in the humanitarian or development community are more or less directly linked to climate change, climate crisis, uh, to whatever short-term weather patterns provide as challenges to the longer-term challenge of, of, of a rising temperature. I think it is really difficult for the development community to get to the point where where it's fully understand as a as a truly global challenge that is that is interconnected that affects California um, and Australia as much as it does the the coastal areas in India or Bangladesh I mean on the one hand I'm um I think we we as a development community should should really be proud because we have generated so much knowledge over the years I mean, climate change is nothing unknown. I mean, when you look at the organizations, if you go back to the Rio summit in the early 90s, um, development researchers, development practitioners, NGOs have always been on that forefront for the last 30, 35 years. They have this incredible knowledge that they have generated from literally around the world, like from all parts uh, of, uh, of the globe. And I think that's really important knowledge um, to tap in. So I'm hoping that those voices out from the global development community can become much, much stronger. At the same time, there is a reality of how politics, how conflict dynamics work, um, how humanitarian crises are ignored and underfunded, that makes me less optimistic in some ways. Um, and and very often is is, you know, it's 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 easy to blame the UN for being slow and bureaucratic. But when you look at the work on the ground, especially in humanitarian environments, it is an incredible great source for good. And it could do more if the right amount of funding uh, was available. So in some ways, you know, when we go back to what we said at the beginning, yes, you can criticize UNICEF for, or local UNICEF uh, organizations for running not so great fundraising campaigns. But there's nothing that any government uh, or stops any government from giving more money to UNICEF. Um, if you think, you know, UNICEF should uh, get more funding to do uh, more uh, of, you know, of the work, then there are plenty of opportunities. You as a government or foundation, even to some extent, I'm more critical about it, but even sort of corporate support. So nothing stops other entities to come forward and support the work rather than saying, well, I guess WFP doesn't have enough money. Well, there's nothing really we can do, but please don't run terrible fundraising campaigns. They still shouldn't be running terrible fundraising campaigns, but it's important then to to look beyond sort of uh, an image or a short video and really think about the root causes. And the root causes are that the humanitarian system is consistently underfunded. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? If you go to the New House Wildlife Sanctuary in the US, it's a small charity run by a fantastic woman who is uh, rehabilitating um, everything from uh, raccoons to squirrels to porcupines. You will get the most heartwarming images of 
cute little animals. And at the same time, if you donate like I do, you can also basically do something good. And I'm absolutely convinced that um, after a day of work on various development issues and on some days where you really read a lot of terrible things on social media, seeing um, how a little porcupine is getting back its strength and will at some point be released into the wilderness um, and uh, a little donation can help, that is actually really, really fulfilling. I love that. Tobias, can you say the name of that organization again? It's the uh, New House Wildlife Sanctuary in Massachusetts. Where is your favorite place on earth? It's by the sea. And luckily in the last 15 years, I have been very fortunate to live close by the sea in, in the UK, in Canada, now in Sweden. Especially in the last six months, I've gotten to know our um, beach and beach walking in, in Sweden really, really well because I have a daily walking routine now. And it's fantastic to see the waves, to, uh, uh, to see how the water is changing. So it's not a particular place, but if I can be by the sea, um, I'm usually very happy. Yeah, me too. What books or book are you reading right now? Um, so I recently finished sort of on a more serious note, I, I finished a, a great book by um, Ulf Lessing on, on Libya. Um, he was the foreign correspondent uh, for Reuters and he has, uh, he shared a really concise analysis of the complexity of Libya after the revolution. Um, that has been a great book. I'm also in the process of writing a review for, uh, for the blog. So the book I read over the summer was Shirley uh, Hazard's People in Glass Houses, a book based on a collection of essays Shirley wrote in the early 1960s for The New Yorker, based on her experience inside the UN headquarters. Um, she doesn't call the, the, the organization in the book UN. And it's absolutely fascinating to see the similarities of the bureaucracies of the 1960s compared to what we are experiencing today. In some ways, it's, it's, it's probably the best fiction book on the UN that I have ever read. It has aged well, but at the same time, it's scary to think that it aged so well, so that the UN in some ways hasn't been really changing over the last, now what, 60 years. That has been incredible food for thought, actually. I think that one is going to be added to my reading list based on that. What about podcasts? The Rethinking Development podcast. And actually, I invited uh, Safa um, to talk to our students this week to get them excited about podcasting uh, as well. I have always been a big fan of Mark Goldberg's uh, UN Dispatch. And I think his now really, his work over the long time, you know, really sort of digging out and finding experts on, on all sorts of international and global politics has been, has been amazing. And I think that's, that's also a project I, I, I really like to support. And over the summer, to move a little bit away from, from development again, the missing crypto queen. I mean, the BBC podcast on a dodgy cryptocurrency. I mean, absolutely. I mean, the production quality has been outstanding. I mean, this is, is absolutely, I mean, podcasting at its best. Um, so the missing crypto queen from the BBC, I mean, if you, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, 
please do. I mean, you will, you will be rewarded. Adding that to my list as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Tobias. And I, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your insights and your work and your research. I think it's such an important part of the narrative of development that we need to probably highlight more. And as you say, charities need to think about and engage with a little bit more, particularly the critical discourse around this. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, this is this is a fantastic way of, of spending my uh, lunch hours here in Sweden. Um, and I'm looking forward to the final product and discussing things further. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.